Welcome to OCD Whisperer Podcast. This is your host, Christina Orlova. Here we talk about all things OCD. If you're looking for help, download my free OCD Survival Kit. It's packed with resources and bonus worksheets to support you on your journey. Go to www.coreresults.com. Welcome to OCD Whisper Show. Today with me, I have Dr. Eva Fisher. She's a communication faculty member at Colorado State University Global and Front Range Community College. She received her PhD from Colorado State University in 2016, founded Fear to Courage Communications in 2015, while completing her dissertation research. Eva is a member of the International OCD Foundation BDD Special Interest Group and has authored multiple articles about coping with and recovery from body dysmorphic disorder. She also has overcome BDD and has written a book called The BDD Family Book. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'm super excited to talk about this topic because I know from my audience, um, definitely people have BDD. I think a lot of people don't fully still understand what that is or how does it really work. So, um, and, you know, it's, it's really great to have somebody who specializes in this and also actually, you know, lives with this and is in recovery. Um, you know, what an honor, I think, and, and, uh, you know, to hear from you directly. So, you know, if it's okay, I'd love to ask you, you know, how did you first discover that you had BDD? Again, thanks for having me. And that's a great question. It was really interesting. I was in Colorado. I had moved to Colorado when I turned 30. I had developed the BDD when I was about 16 years old. So I had had it for a while. I lived in Massachusetts. I had worked managing an art gallery in Boston before I moved out to Colorado. And that was back in the day when they didn't have kind of self-checkouts at grocery stores. So I think you remember you were kind of stuck waiting in line and looking at all those, you know, magazines at the checkout. And as usual, I'm scanning, you know, all the magazines and especially the fashion magazines, because when I had BDD, one of the biggest things was social comparison. I always compared myself to like models and magazines. So I'm I'm scanning and I and I cast sight on a shape magazine, which is, you know, supposedly a fitness magazine, but really it's also a fashion magazine. Um, you know, this beautiful model with blonde hair and blue eyes and this bright blue bikini and, you know, so curvaceous and of course airbrushed, but I didn't really realize that at the time. And I was just awestruck because that's, you know, how I always wanted to look was blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, the all American type. And as I'm standing there kind of, you know, mesmerized, but then I start scanning, you know, the headlines around her And the last headline kind of at the bottom was hate your looks, Uh, you know, what it means when the mirror lies. And I was just struck. I was like, hmm, you know, I never considered that the mirror lied to me. I always thought I was I had the delusional, you know, how there's different, you know, there's fair, the different levels of insight. So there's fair, good insight, poor, and then kind of the delusional or absent insight. And I definitely had that. I was I was on the delusional. So I always believed what the mirror told me. And and for me, it was really looking at my nose because I had had plastic surgery on my nose when I was 18. But I still I still was very unhappy with my nose. And I really I would stare at it, you know, for hours and think about it for hours every day. And so it never occurred to me that the mayor lied because my parents were artists. I was artistic. I just always believed what I saw in front of me. 
And so I, you know, again, I have some time because I'm waiting in line. So I pick up the magazine and I go to the article and there's basically that um, article was based on some research by, you know, Catherine Phillips and Sabine Wilhelm and um, Fugan who um, had, you know, were early researchers of that. And this was in 1997. Catherine Phillips' book, Dr. Catherine Phillips' book, The Broken Mirror, had come out in 1996, the first edition. So um, Liz Brody, who wrote the article, had interviewed her and interviewed Sabine Wilhelm. And I was just, it was amazing, just, you know, reading excerpts from people's stories and their feelings. And then they took like a five-question questionnaire from Dr. Phillips' book, The Broken Mirror, and I think I answered like yes to three of those, including, you know, I does, you know, some aspect of your parents cause you great distress? And do you spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, this, this aspect of your appearance? And I was just like, that's what I have. It was just, it was, it was really, I mean, I did additional research after that, but of course I bought the magazine. I still have it uh, with me to this day because it was just, you know, that aha moment where I suddenly gained insight that this is what I have. And I manage, I, sorry, I facilitate two uh, online support groups, one for people, adults with BDD, and then another one for therapists with OCD and BDD. I really have to say that most people with BDD really self-diagnosis is pretty common because the characteristics and the symptoms of it are so distinctive that once people read about what the symptoms are and what the kind of obsessions and compulsions are with the disorder, I think people recognize that like I did. It's just, that's what I have. You know, Dr. Fisher, for anybody listening here today who maybe this is their first time or maybe they're just in the beginning of that journey, would you mind just giving folks some examples of what are what are some of the common symptoms? Because, you know, I talk a lot about OCD and people... I feel like listening to my podcast, definitely know that. Um, but what about BDD? What could be the things that people could look for? There's a lot of common symptoms. Again, a, these can be found on the International OCD website. There's good information on the BDD Foundation website too. They have a lot of good information about body dysmorphic disorder. I think Nowadays, what I'm finding more and more is people confuse body dysmorphia, the term body dysmorphia with body dysmorphic disorder. And why, and I just want to mention that first before I go into symptoms, because why that is problematic is that body dysmorphia is a more general term, simply meaning that people are uncomfortable with some aspect of their appearance. It's not a psychological disorder. So a lot of people could have body dysmorphia, especially, you know, with Instagram and social media and, and everything. Uh, so that term really gets confused. And the reason, again, that's an issue is most people, when they hear body dysmorphia, immediately go to eating disorders <laughs> mm. and think, oh, yeah, I've had body dysmorphia. What they mean is they've had an eating disorder. They don't really mean I've had body dysmorphic disorder, which is the psychological, which is a psychological disorder. As you know, it's on the OCD spectrum um, in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Health, which is the DSM-5, the latest version that came out in 2013. So some common symptoms are camouflaging. That's probably the most common symptom. So 
um, hiding the perceived defect with clothing or makeup. Um, a lot of people talk about wearing makeup all the time, like even in bed, because they don't want their partner to see this perceived or perceived defects. Generally, it's focused on one's face, which also makes it, it can be on any part of the body, though. It can be one's hands, one's teeth, one's feet. Um, but it, it's mostly on one's face or some aspect of one's face or head, um, hair, for me, nose. Um, and that's also what differentiates it from an eating disorder, where an eating disorder, especially with anorexia, people will look in the mirror and, you know, see themselves as fat when they're not. Uh, and so for people with BDD, they look in the mirror and they see some aspect of themselves as ugly or distorted or disfigured. They'll use terms like hideous um, when they look in the mirror at themselves or like a monster. Uh, those kinds of really, those really self-hatred towards one's appearance, which I certainly, I mean, I experienced that when I had BDD, uh, you know, just this awful self-hatred. And the obsessive part of uh, a BDD is about, again, it's those thoughts. For me, I was thinking about my nose from the time I woke up in the morning and I just thought it was fat and ugly. Um, but from the time I woke up in the morning to this time I went to bed at night, I could not have a conversation. Like I could not be talking with you without thinking, oh my God, you know, half of my brain would be going, oh, what is she thinking about my nose? And, you know, as soon as the conversation would be over, I'd be back in the mirror staring at my nose going, oh, she must've just, you know, she must you know, people are going to hate me because of my nose, you know, they're going to reject me. And that's just so common that, you know, that feeling of shame and self-hatred is really something that I think everyone with BDD can recognize. Um, but the other aspects are, like I said, social comparison, social comparison is big. Uh, reassurance seeking is another one. And what that means is um, asking people, you know, how do you think I look? Do you think my nose looks okay, for example? And unfortunately, though, when loved ones try to help, um, you know, and they try to say, sure, you look fine, you look great, even beautiful. You know, a lot of times people say, you look beautiful, you look handsome. The problem is for people with BDD, it just, they don't believe it. They feel people lying to them to make them feel better. And so their response is generally anger, Instead of, you know, for most people without BDD, if you compliment them on their appearance, they're going to go, great, thanks, you know, um, not people with BDD. They're going to respond like an anger um, because they just feel like, you know, that person's lying to me. Why are they lying to me? Because they really believe what they see in the mirror is the reality, not what other people are telling them about themselves. And so there's this big disconnect that happens, which is really unfortunate because what it lends itself to is people with BDD generally don't seek out therapy. In, in fact, they tend to be therapy resistant because unlike people with OCD that have good insight in general, like, you know, if they want to wash their hands 20 or 50 times a day, they generally know that's not normal. Right. Not everyone wants to do that. And, you know, it's pretty people with BDD, especially for even for me. I mean, I ha I was depressed. I also had depression. And, you know, people can have disorders that are comorbid or, you know, have the same disorder at the same time. And so people can have, you know, OCD, as you mentioned, and BDD or OCD. BDD and, and an eating disorder, or for me, depression and anxiety, social anxiety are very common. And I was very depressed, but I was depressed because I thought I was ugly. And in our society, we're told, of course, you know, if you're beautiful, you tend to get better jobs, you get a better partner, you know, you're successful, you have a happier, better life. 
And I just thought, well, of course, I, I have every right to be depressed, right? I'm ugly. So, you know, people are going to reject me. People, you know. And so for me, you know, it's that lack of insight where people with BDD generally want to seek out a plastic surgeon. And that's what happened. When I was 18, I told my mom how much I hated my nose. And she paid for a rhinoplasty, which for people who don't know, is a nose job. And, you know, she loved it, right? She thought, wow, it was successful. She told me that, you know, they did a great job. I was like, no, I want another one, right? I don't like it. It's not thin enough. It's got this weird ski soap shape to it. And so kind of like, I mean, Michael Jackson was, of course, never officially diagnosed with BDD. But I think if I had had the money, um, I probably would have had multiple <laughs> surgeries on my nose. Fortunately, I didn't. And I think the only good thing that came from that experience, because I felt horribly guilty, I still hated my nose. Of course, I still had BDD. The BDD didn't go away. Um, and so the only bad thing, the only good thing that really came from that, I think, is that I started to get some level of insight that there was something going on that maybe didn't have to do with my appearance. Because like I said, my mom thought I looked great. My boyfriend thought I looked great. And I didn't. And so again, there's this disconnect where, you know, people want to get multiple plastic surgeries thinking that that's going to help fix the problem without realizing that the problem is up here, right? It's a mental health problem. And of course, you can't fix a mental health problem with plastic surgery. Unfortunately, a lot of people with BDD don't realize that. So those, I would say, are probably some of the most common symptoms. Thank you so much. That was a really great kind of overview. And I love that you touched on, you know, that for folks with BDD, it really can be, you know, it, it face can be common, but also it can be things like hair or, you know, the a part of, you know, a leg or an arm, a stomach, you know, anything, anything. It really can attach to anything. Shape of your head, right? It's it's any of those things can show up. Um, so for anybody listening, I bet they're wondering at this point, well, what? What can be done about this? Like, okay, it sounds like you can recover, but what would you have to do? What would treatment look like? Great question. It's similar to OCD, to obsessive compulsive disorder. And that's why it's considered, that's one of the reasons I should say it's considered on the OCD spectrum now in the DSM-5. It's, it's, it's considered that both because of, you know, what I've talked about, kind of the obsessive thoughts, right, that are similar to OCD. And there's also compulsive behaviors such as mirror checking, reassurance seeking, social comparison, stuff like that. Similar to, to OCD, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is considered the gold standard by Dr. Phillips and other um, clinicians for treating BDD. Uh, and again, so it's, it's taking, it's letting people know that those obsessive thoughts, they can control them. But, you know, a, a big part of that is called, you know, ERP or exposure response prevention, which again, it's different from OCD though. And one of the mistakes that's made, I think, is treating BDD just like OCD about appearance, because it's not. There's a lot of feelings of shame. And again, that self-hatred, uh, that really isn't as present in a lot of, I think, OCD. Um, it can be, but not to the extent. And the other issue that comes up a lot 
um, I should say, when treating BDD, and certainly did for me, um, and I'll come to medication in just a moment, but for me, uh, there's really getting to this issues around uh, childhood ab abuse and neglect, bullying, that can be at the core of a lot of BDD. And I think studies, more recent studies, have been showing that the greater the childhood abuse and neglect, the more severe BDD symptoms are for people. How did that look for me? How that looked for me was after I self-diagnosed myself, we'll come back to the story. After I self-diagnosed myself, that was in 2000, I was 30 years old. Here I'm faced with kind of a dilemma. I was very pleased that I could finally put a name to what I had been you know, dealing with for almost 15 years of my life since I turned 16. However, on the other hand, there's still a stigma about having a mental health disorder, right? And so I had to balance this. I mean, there's certainly a stigma about being ugly in our society, which I had been living with for 15 years, but there's also a stigma about having a mental health disorder. And I'm like, hmm, okay. And I'm balancing, I'm like, you know, the stigma of being ugly is actually worse for me than the stigma of having a mental health disorder because with a mental health disorder, I know it's treatable. What I did was I referred myself to treatment to a doctor at um, the HMO that I was currently, I had, I did have health insurance at that time. I actually realized I diagnosed myself in 1997 I didn't go for treatment until 2000. I found all this out. I kind of did this when I was researching for my book, The BDD Family, uh, because I, I tell my own story in the, in the first two chapters before I go into other people's stories. So I had to do the timeline for myself. And I was like, hmm, what happened? And I realized I probably didn't have health insurance, which is a big barrier for people trying to seek treatment because a lot of people don't have health insurance, so they can't pay for therapy. Uh, but... So I think I waited until I had health insurance, until I had a job in health insurance. That's that's what I'm thinking. Uh, so I, I, I referred myself in 2000 for treatment. And then I was on Prozac for two years. And SSRIs, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, basically have, of course, are used to treat OCD, but they're also, they're antidepressants that are have been shown to be effective for people with BDD versus just any other antidepressants. Just the SSRIs are the ones that are used to treat BDD. And of course, there's, I think, five or six of them. In general, Dr. Phillips says that um, larger doses are generally better for people with BDD and are generally used for people with BDD rather than other um, conditions. However, BDD wasn't really well known when I self-diagnosed myself in 2000. And it really wasn't, I think, prominent in the DSM, the earlier versions. So I was diagnosed with depression, which was fine because that's what I had. I also had depression, as I mentioned. And I was put on Prozac, which was good. I was put on 20 milligrams of Prozac, which is pretty typical for depression. Fortunately, I think because I'm sensitive to meds, the 20 milligrams worked for me. And in about, I would say three to four weeks, the obsessive thoughts about my nose really started to diminish. The other thing that was very noticeable for me was ever since I turned 16 and I started having those obsessive thoughts, I had this anxiety, you know, whenever I was thinking how ugly my nose was. 
And it was almost like there was this coiled spring in the pit of my stomach that was just constant anxiety, right? That went along with the depression. That's what I noticed myself internally as the medication was taking effect was not only was, you know, the obsessive thoughts diminishing, but the anxiety was going away. And it was almost like the spring started kind of uncoiling and relaxing. And I didn't have that constant anxiety in my stomach anymore. So that's what I noticed. It was interesting because when I went back to the psychiatrist, what she noticed, she's like, wow, you're making eye contact with me and you're smiling. I didn't realize I hadn't been doing that, that, you know, I, I avoided eye contact and I was looking down and obviously very internally focused, so probably frowning a lot. But she noticed that right away. And I have to say my mother did, too. My mother didn't know I was in treatment for BDD. I never told her that because, again, she she loved my nose. Right. So I wasn't going to tell her, hey, you know, I I still hate my nose. I I felt like I was letting her down. And she was an artist, too. So, you know, she really she was she believed what she saw and she and she was really convinced, right, that my nose was better. But she had known I was depressed and she had actually recommended Prozac. So she also noticed she's like, wow, you know, you're smiling and you're becoming the young woman I always thought you could be. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, So they noticed that, you know, people outside me noticed it. I just noticed those two things internally. So for me, the Prozac helped. I was on it for two years. I was actually doing talk therapy for my depression because again, CBT wasn't really, BDD wasn't well known and CBT wasn't really widely used for depression, but the talk therapy worked in conjunction with the medication. After my BDD symptoms diminished, I went to a counselor who did more, I guess you could say she did a little bit of CBT type of work with me where, you know, dealing with my thoughts and my cognitions. But what was really significant for me is that she started talking about some of the core issues that had caused kind of the shame and that feeling of rejection and loss of love that I had experienced as a child that I didn't even remember, honestly. But, you know, through looking at my dreams, through kind of doing, you know, these exercises, and I'm not going to go into what all of them were right now, but I actually got to the core of it, which I talk about a little bit in the first two chapters of my book. So I'll just briefly touch on it here. But it was just my father was neurotic. He also had anger management issues. He was emotionally abusive to my mother. Um, shouting matches, you know, there was a lot of shouting in my house, a lot of, and even throwing objects at one another at one point when my parents got really angry at one another. Um, And I internalized a lot of that myself. I was very hypersensitive. That's also a trait of people with BDD, perfectionistic. I saw, you know, one of your podcasts dealt with perfectionism and OCD. Perfectionism also comes up in BDD, but of course it's related to one's appearance. Um, And so I internalized all of that. And at one point when I had these emotional outbursts, not anger, but I was bullied a lot in school, you know, that childhood trauma bullying. And so I would come home and just burst into tears and I would be very emotional. I would have these, you know, crying outbursts, not, not anger outbursts, but my mom still compared myself to my dad to my, and she would say, you know, don't act like your dad. 
The problem with that, and I, I'm sure she was well-meaning as mothers are, right? She was well-meaning in, in that because clearly bursting out emotionally in tears is not, not going to win you a lot of friends or popularity contests. However, as a child and as a teenager, the way I internalized that was don't act like your father because, you know, I hate your father <laughs> and I don't want you to be like your father. Uh, because you'll never get a, you'll never be in a good relationship, right? You're going to hurt other people. Like my father obviously was hurting my mom, which is, which is true. And I think, again, I think my mom meant well, but the way I took that as a child was, wow, you know, my mom must hate me, right? She hates that part of me. That's like my dad. So she's rejecting me, but that's really hard for a child to internalize, right? It's like, my mom hates me. <laughs> She's rejecting me. So I think, you know, I took that in subconsciously. And then as I turned 16, and as I was, you know, more aware of my appearance, because before that, I hadn't actually looked in the mirror ever. But when I was looking in the mirror at 16, and I knew my mom was an artist, both my parents were, um, which again, people who are artistic, uh, tend, you know, Dr. Veal, Dr. David Veal in the UK found that people who are artistic, um, whereas most people in the population, two to three percent have BDD, which is higher than OCD. It's higher than anorexia or bulimia. However, people who are artistic, 20 percent of people who are artistic have BDD because, of course, that aesthetic, I think, you know, that being aware of aesthetics and and beauty, that was certainly true for me. Uh, so, you know, I think. Again, all subconsciously, this wasn't conscious, of course, until I had therapy and I could bring it to the surface. I think, you know, I was like, well, I know my, I know there's something about my mom that, that displeases, you know, something about me that displeases my mother. And I, she had already told me that also my appearance didn't really, you know, she didn't consider me beautiful <laughs> in her eyes. You know, she, you know, she came from, Eng her, her relatives came over from the Mayflower, she liked to tell me. Uh, my dad was from Austria. Clearly, I, I look more like my dad's side of the family. So I knew my appearance also wasn't quite what she wanted, but I knew there was something else. I just, I always felt like I loved my mom. She was my best friend all the way through my 20s. But I always felt at the back, you know, there was something about me that she, she rejected. And so I think, you know, I took to be appearance. That seemed like an easy thing to do, right? It's very common. It's, it's what people judge, what we judge each other by is appearance. It wasn't until I was in therapy that I was able to go, no, it, I mean, certainly, I mean, the BDD was a big part of my life as a mental health disorder, but it was that early trauma and that internalizing of that message of my mom doesn't love me, my mom's rejecting me, that I had to unearth and come to a resolution of saying, well, that's not true. Right. And I'm sure my mom didn't mean that, even if that's how I internalized her message. And that I have to say is when I say that I'm recovered from BDD and I say that and I mean it because I know I won't go back and and have those traits again or those you know obsessions and compulsions. That's the reason. It's not because of the two years I spent dealing with the symptoms it's because of the other two to three years I spent after that dealing with these core issues. And I think, you know, more and more studies are looking at 
those core issues of feeling, you know, that abuse or neglect or, you know, rejection from one's mother, uh, that really can be one one of, I mean, no one knows what the cause of BDD is and the researchers are doing constant research on that, but it's definitely, you know, kind of a combination of nature and nurture versus other mental health disorders where yes, there's a genetic component, Obviously, you know, it's related if your parent has OCD or depression, it can be genetic, but it can also be environmental, as I've talked about, through bullying, through, you know, this childhood feeling rejection or abuse and neglect. So the causes are multifaceted and there's no one cause. It's probably multiple causes. And it certainly was for me. It's also personality traits. As I said, I was almost predisposed being hypersensitive, being a perfectionist, um, all those things also probably predispose me. And I do have a touch of OCD, I have to say, uh, because I know this is the OCD podcast. For me, though, it was very, very small, but it was the OCD that I would always have these visions of terrible things happening. And yes, I'm the kind of person was who has to go back and check. Did I, did I lock all the doors? Did I? But it was always kind of like, like with my cat, I especially remember like always visualizing the worst, like, oh my God, I'm cl- going to close the door on her tail or I'm going to crush her her little head in the door one day. And it was just this little bit of catastrophizing, but it was it was very little compared to the overwhelming obsession with my nose. <laughs> so, so it yeah. was there, but it, it wasn't the biggest issue I was facing. Yeah, but again, like you said, right? It, the, the thing is that people can have multiple, right? You can have OCD and BDD or chest BDD. But I, I think like you mentioned that the thing is that at this point, we know it's kind of under the spectrum, the, the umbrella of anxiety disorders. And um, and like you said, guilt, shame, all of that. Um, but thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I just want to, again, anybody listening today, uh, Dr. Fisher has an awesome book out called The BDD Family Book. Um, anybody watching on YouTube, here we go. You get to see what it looks like. Um, and uh, Dr. Fisher, if anybody is listening today and they want to find you, how can they find you? They can find me multiple ways. And again, thanks a lot for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. And it's always great to be able to raise awareness about body yes. dysmorphic disorder. I think, like I said, all the researchers and clinicians, they're is a group called the, at the International OCD Foundation, the Special Interest Group for BDD. There are amazing therapists and researchers that are members, including Dr. Catherine Phillips, uh, just so many great people. So I'm very proud to be a part of the International OCD Foundation. My recovery story is there. There's a listing for my support group, the Recovery from BDD support group. Also, I have a website um, called Fear to Courage, and if you just Google Fear to Courage BDD resources, I have a lot of resources for my book with active links there to clinicians who are featured in my book, clinicians and researchers. Uh, there's suicide prevention because, of course, well, I shouldn't, I mentioned, I shouldn't, didn't mention this, but suicidality, um, suicide um, IDs, ideation is happens in about 80% of people with BDD. Um, about 25, 24% of people with BDD actively try to commit suicide. And suicide, unfortunately, BDD has the highest um, amount of suicide attempts um, of any mental health disorder, including depression. 
which again makes it really important to get the word out. So I do have my website also on the BDD Foundation. Um, my my support groups are listed. If you want to reach me directly, you can just email me at eva eva at recoveryfrombdd.com. All one word. Beautiful. And I'll include all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you again for having me. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to OCD Whisperer Podcast. If you want to take your recovery journey to the next level, our online class, the OCD-free ERP Mindset, may be the right thing for you. It features video lessons, journal prompts, and worksheets designed to help you break the OCD cycle. Access it now and start thriving today at www.coreresults.com forward slash e-learning. All links are in the show notes.